Hello and welcome to today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald for Wednesday, January the 24th, 2024. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik, and here is our first story. It's entitled, Barnes & Noble Coming to Dubuque. World's Largest Retail Bookseller is Planning an April Opening. It's written by Nick Juice. A national book retailer is opening a location in Dubuque. Barnes & Noble will open a store this spring in Asbury Plaza in the former Pier 1 Imports space that most recently was occupied by Spirit Halloween. Window decorations at the store advertise the bookseller's impending arrival. It's always good to see another bookstore, said Joe Bell, director of corporate communications for Cafaro Company, which owns a majority of storefronts in Asbury Plaza. We know their reputation precedes them. It's a fine name in books across America, and we are pleased they are coming here. The 9,000-square-foot space is being renovated. A building permit issued by the city of Dubuque in December lists the construction value of the interior build-out at $476,700. Barnes & Noble operates nearly 600 stores across all 50 states. The Dubuque location will be its eighth in Iowa. Right now, Barnes & Noble is expanding, and we are looking at all kinds of communities, especially markets we underserve or haven't served, said Janine Flanagan, Senior Director of Store Planning and Design at Barnes & Noble Incorporated. The company is the world's largest retail bookseller, but also sells digital media, educational products, newspapers, and magazines, among other items, according to its website. Barnes & Noble was founded in 1873 when Charles M. Barnes started a book business out of his Wheaton, Illinois home. The company's first flagship store was opened in New York City during the Great Depression. Barnes & Noble became a publicly traded company in 1993 and continued to grow throughout the 1990s and 2000s. In 2011, Barnes & Noble purchased Walden Books as well as Borders, both of which once operated stores in Kennedy Mall. In 2019, Barnes & Noble was acquired by United Kingdom-based Elliott Advisors and taken private. A listing for the Dubuque location on Barnes & Noble's website indicates the store will open in April at 2531 Northwest Arterial and will include toys and games as well as expanded vinyl offerings for purchase along with books and other materials. The Dubuque location will not have a cafe, Flanagan said, due to the store's square footage limitations. She added shoppers will experience Barnes & Noble's recent aesthetic update that includes brighter colors, new flooring and furniture, and various book rooms. What you've seen in Barnes & Noble is different than this store, Flanagan said. It's lighter and brighter. We designed the store in a way that creates wonderful shops. We have book rooms, including for hardcover and new releases. The journey takes you from one book room to another. Bell was pleased to note that the largest of the three remaining empty storefronts at Asbury Plaza will be filled. Pier 1 Imports closed in 2020 after store officials reported declining sales that eventually led to all its stores closing and the company filing for bankruptcy. It's good to fill that space after it was made empty because of the bankruptcy of Pier 1, which was a shame, Bell said. But, like a lot of retailers, they faced turbulence in the past, so we're happy that that space will be filled. Dubuque customers will have another choice for books. Dubuque Area Chamber of Commerce President and CEO Molly Grover said she is happy another national retailer has opted to set roots in Dubuque. We are always thrilled to welcome new businesses to Dubuque for the people who live, work, and play here, Grover said. 
Retail is important to attract and retain workforce talent, and this is fantastic. It's not only a welcome and known retail commodity, but this also helps create job opportunities and generate additional sales tax revenue and keep more of our dollars local. Our next article from the front page of the Telegraph Herald is entitled, Schools Help Keep Students Warm. A stash of coats, hats, and gloves comes in handy. It's written by Elizabeth Kelsey. With this month's weather so far, including feet of snow and bitterly cold temperatures, local school districts are doing what they can to ensure students have proper winter gear. Officials from several area schools described multiple methods, including clothing drives and district funds, that they use to provide clothes such as hats, coats, and snow pants for students who do not have access to them. We're an educational institution, but that's not the only thing we're here for, said Dan Wendler, principal of Cascade Iowa Elementary School. We're here to meet the needs of every student, and we don't get to decide the needs that kids come to school with, but it's our job to do our best to address them. Dubuque Community School District maintains a clothes closet and food pantry at Northeast Iowa Community College's Dubuque Center, and individual schools also have closets or supplies of winter gear as well, according to Shirley Horstman, the district's executive director of student services. District counselors, life coaches, school connectors, and other staff members who frequently interact with families are part of an email group where staff can send a message if they need a certain clothing item or size at their school. This morning, I saw one of the schools needed a size 13 pair of boots for a first grader, Horstman said Monday. In a minute, I saw the reply, got a pair, I'll be sending it over. District families also can visit the clothes closet at NICC, which is open on Mondays from 2 to 4 p.m. and Wednesdays from 10 a.m. to noon. Horseman said the closet does not have the capacity to accept donations from the general public, but instead receives curated donations from organizations and businesses that focus on providing the sizes students typically need. We know our children keep growing, so the coat that fit them in November may not fit them now when they really need it, she said. Other times we are giving an additional coat because the one they have, they can't get zipped or the zipper breaks or the buttons fell off. Especially in the cold snap that we just had, we wanted to make sure that every student had a properly fitting jacket, and we do have sufficient supply for that to happen. Sarah Davis, middle school and high school counselor in Potosi, Wisconsin, said the school student council holds a coat drive each year before Christmas. This year, the school collected about 25 coats of various sizes. We collect those coats, make sure they're clean, and then we have a closet area where they're available for students to use, and even family members of students if they need things, she said. We have a really nice supply to help fill that the need for things like coats, hats, gloves, and scarves, even shoes. She said local organizations, individuals, and businesses regularly contact the school to ask what winter items they can donate. We really embrace our students and families, and that's the blessing of being a small district, she said. It's a very strong community here. Lisa Breitsbrecker, school counselor at Galena Elementary and Middle School, said the district has a fund established at First Community Bank of Galena called the Pirate Closet. District staff members can purchase necessities such as winter gear for students, then submit the receipts for those purchases for reimbursement from the Pirate Closet Fund. Any community member can visit the bank and make a donation to the fund. 
Breitsprecher noted that the pirate closet model helps protect student confidentiality as only the staff member who makes the purchase knows for which student it is intended. We try to make personal connections with our students, she said. If we see a student without a coat, we can call that student by name and try to figure out what happened or what they need. In Cascade, Wendler said the local Knights of Columbus branch holds a children's coat drive each fall, and the local schools serve as donation sites. Other individuals donate directly to the school's closet of winter gear. In my experience, we haven't had families that have expressly reached out with a need for winter clothes, but our teachers are very aware of what kids have, and they'll advocate for their students, he said. In addition to providing boots or snow pants for children who do not have them, Cascade Elementary School also uses its clothing closet to loan winter gear to students who forgot theirs at home that day so they can still go out for recess. It's so important for kids to get outside during these winter months, Wendler said. Cabin fever is a real thing, so for kids to be able to get some energy out and get that fresh air does a lot for their mental well-being and for their bodies, so they can come into the classroom and do their best. Our final story from the front page of the Telegraph Herald is entitled, Video Cameras Coming to Iowa Nursing Homes. Lawmakers consider ways to combat elder abuse at care facilities in the state. It's written by Benjamin Fisher. A bill in the Iowa House of Representatives would allow nursing home residents and loved ones access to electronic monitoring devices installed in rooms as long-term care concerns continue. Reports of neglect and abuse of residents in some Iowa nursing homes came into the spotlight last year, with four Iowa facilities added to a federal watch list, contributing to widespread concerns. Area lawmakers expected reform proposals for long-term care facilities prior to the 2024 legislative session. It's heartbreaking that any family member should have to worry about the safety and care of a loved one, said Iowa Senate Minority Leader Pam Yoakum, a Democrat from Dubuque, who serves on the Senate Health and Human Services Committee and is following several bills on the subject this year. That being said, the majority of Iowa's nursing homes do a good job, but there are some bad actors in the state. An early example, House File 537, received its first subcommittee hearing Tuesday, though it has been workshopped by lawmakers and stakeholders for years. Lawmakers unanimously forwarded the bill to the full House Health and Human Services Committee. The bill would allow electronic monitoring equipment, video equipment that live streams footage as opposed to a device for video calls or conferencing in residence rooms if desired and consented to by numerous parties. Installation would have to be requested by a resident or their resident representative, an appointed guardian or attorney. Jerry Schilling Johnson, campus administrator at Mount Carmel Bluffs in Dubuque, said she has been asked about this sort of video monitoring. We have some families who maybe would want there to be a camera in their loved one's room, which is their right to want, she said. We've had families request that, like in our memory care unit. Whenever you leave a loved one in the care of other people, whether that's in the hospital or a long-term care facility, there's always going to be that sense of, am I doing the right thing? Are they safe? But as for now, we have security cameras in hallways and common areas, but nothing in our private living areas. Lawmakers must also consider others who would be impacted, roommates, nursing home caretakers, and other staff, visitors, and other residents. 
This was something we were approached with many times, said AARP Iowa representative and former nursing home administrator Kay Johns during Tuesday's subcommittee meeting. Something we really want to engage in is making sure that all a facility's residents have support from their family members, be that by video or in person. I think there is a lot of value in programs like this, but appreciate the language protecting roommates. Under the bill, the installation of a monitoring device would require the written consent of the nursing facility management, documented consent of the resident or residence representative, any roommates or the roommates' representatives, and the notification of visitors. Any required consent could be withdrawn at any time. If one roommate did not want the monitoring device, facilities must make a reasonable attempt to accommodate the resident's wishes for monitoring, such as offering to move either roommate. Sunnycrest Manor Administrator Danny Etma said roommate privacy would be her primary concern with monitoring devices in rooms as well as where the feed goes. For privacy, I would have concerns, and then who would have access to it, she said. I don't know how secure those feeds are, but if somebody is looking to check in with a family member, I get that. The bill would also ban nursing facilities from refusing admission or from removing a resident based on them having a monitoring device, from retaliating against a resident for consenting to or refusing monitoring, or refusing a resident's slash representative's request to install a device. Nursing facility staff would be banned from tampering with or obstructing monitor devices under the bill. Nursing facilities would not be civilly or criminally liable for disclosure of an unlawful recording from a device and could report resident-slash-representative violation of privacy laws via monitoring. Peter Hurd with Iowa Federation of Labor thanked lawmakers for including protections for nursing home caregivers, which were missing from previous versions of the bill. Iowa Representative Ann Meyer, a Republican from Fort Dodge, who chairs the House Health and Human Services Committee and served on Tuesday's subcommittee, said she had introduced an early version of the bill during her first term and was ecstatic to see the revised version gain momentum. We owe it not only to the residents, but to the staff and residents as well to be careful because this is a protection for the caretakers and a protection for the residents as well, she said. To make sure we are transparent and that families can see their loved ones is key. Yoakum said other nursing home-related legislation likely is coming, including attempts to increase the state's number of nursing home inspectors. We are very low on inspectors, including in the long-term care ombudsman's office, who would want to give information to families as much as they can so they can make the right decisions, she said. Our next article is entitled, A.Y. McDonald Awarded $5.85 Million in Tax Credits. Wisconsin Economic Group Approves Funds for Brass Foundry Project in Deal. A Dubuque-based manufacturer has been awarded nearly $6 million in tax credits to assist with the construction of a new foundry in southwest Wisconsin. An Economic Development Corp. Board of Directors on Tuesday approved awarding A.Y. McDonald Manufacturing Company up to $5.85 million in performance-based tax credits, a press release states. The tax credits will go toward A.Y. McDonald's ongoing project to build a 360,000-square-foot brass foundry in Dickeyville. 
A.Y. McDonald plans to invest at least $340 million in Keeler and Dickeyville and create 173 high-paying jobs over the next five years, the press release states. This new foundry project not only demonstrates a commitment to our industry, but more importantly, a commitment to our people, A.Y. McDonald CEO Rob McDonald said in the release. We made the commitment early on to build our next foundry where our current foundry co-workers live, and that is right here in the tri-state area. The release states that the Wisconsin Economic Development Corp. Board approved and submitted to the Wisconsin State Legislature Joint Committee on Finance for review a plan by which A.Y. McDonald is eligible for performance-based enterprise zone tax credits if it creates a specific number of new jobs and meets the investment criteria. The committee has 14 days to review the creation of a new enterprise zone, and one automatically will be created unless the committee takes action. A.Y. McDonald is based in Dubuque and manufactures waterworks, brass, plumbing valves, pumps, and natural gas products. The Dickeyville Foundry will be the fourth foundry built in the company's 167-year history and its first in Wisconsin. Officials broke ground on the project last year. The new foundry is expected to be fully operational in 2026, at which point the Dubuque foundry in Chavanel, on Chavanel Road will be decommissioned and workers there will be transferred to the Dickeyville location. The press release notes that A.Y. McDonald officials also plan to expand the use of an existing Keeler facility to support manufacturing operations. The company headquarters will be will remain in Dubuque, as will the machinery and assembly operations. The release also states that the village of Dickeyville in 2023 created a tax increment financing district to help with public improvements for A.Y. McDonald's foundry project. Dubuque casinos see decrease in gaming revenue for 2023. Diamond Joe and Q Casino collectively generated $123.67 million last year, down 1.8% from 2022. This is written by Elizabeth Kelsey. Dubuque's two casinos reported strong gaming revenues in 2023, despite a slight decrease in overall revenue as compared to the previous year. Diamond Joe Casino and Q Casino collectively generated $123.67 million in gaming revenue in 2023, down 1.8% from 2022's total of $125.98 million. Diamond Joe reported $76.9 million in gaming revenue last year, compared to $74.2 million in 2022, while Q Casino reported gaming revenue of $46.7 million in 2023, compared to its 2022 total of $51.7 million. Officials for DRA the nonprofit license holder for Dubuque's casinos also shared at a meeting on Tuesday that DRA's total distribution to the city of Dubuque for 2023 totaled $6.7 million. 2023 was a phenomenal year, said Alex Dixon, president and CEO of Q Casino and DRA. We were able to really move forward with approvals for the development plans that we've we're right in the middle of, and 2024 is shaping up to be a phenomenal opportunity for us at Q Casino to reinvigorate our core brand. Q Casino is in the midst of an $80 million five-phase project that will include a renovated casino space, family entertainment zone, and an eight-story boutique hotel with a rooftop restaurant, among other updates. 
The first phase of the project, which includes updates to the casino's lower level and the creation of a new gambling space, is now under construction. This means that patrons are utilizing a temporary gaming space, which Dixon said continues to negatively affect overall gaming revenue. Q Casino reported $3.3 million in gaming revenue last month, a 16.2% decrease compared to the $3.9 million reported in December of 2022. However, Dixon noted that the casino's hospitality and other revenues did rise year over year last month. Meanwhile, Diamond Joe's gaming revenue rose by 22.7% from about $5.7 million in December of 2022 to $7.1 million in December 2023. DRA officials also noted that $1.9 million was distributed in grant funds during 2023. For the second year under the organization's new model, grant applicants could apply for either core grants of up to $50,000 or mission grants, which in 2023 fell between $75,000 and $100,000. This year, mission grant applications will be open April 8th through 19th, and core grant applications will be open May 6th through 17th. At the meeting, officials also discussed an agreement that Dubuque City Council members approved earlier this month with Schmidt Island Development Corp., which has been working with DRA to manage and staff I'm On Arena on an interim basis. The new agreement places Schmidt Island Development Corp. in charge of day-to-day operations at the facility, while the city retains ownership of the arena and will pay for any major maintenance or capital improvements, along with an annual fixed fee of $100,000. Schmidt Island Development Corp. Board Chair Kathy Burr said the organization is excited to connect with the community through planned programming like free rentals of ice skating equipment for Dubuque students and families. We're very appreciative of Iman's investment into the community and into the ice arena, she said. It's really great to see the community come together to ensure that operations at that facility are sustainable long term. Now here's some news in brief. First, Miles Nielsen and the Rusted Hearts to perform in June at Codfish Hollow, Dateline, Maquoketa, Iowa. A Rockford, Illinois-based band fronted by the son of a Rock and Roll Hall of Famer will perform this summer at Jackson County Venue. Miles Nielsen and the Rusted Hearts will perform June 15th at Codfish Hollow Barnstormers, according to an online announcement. Nielsen is the son of Cheap Tricks' Nick Nielsen. Miles Nielsen and his band have toured regularly since the group's inception in 2011. The band will headline at a show beginning at 8 p.m. at the venue, 5013 288th Avenue in rural Maquoketa. Eric Koskinen and Marquez Morel will play in support. Tickets are $30 and will be available beginning 10 a.m. Friday, January the 26th. Visit codfishhollowbarnstormers.com for more information. Hopkinton Man wins $50,000 lottery prize. This comes from Hopkinton, Iowa. A Delaware County man has won a $50,000 lottery prize. Earl Bernardi of Hopkinton won the 31st top prize in the Iowa Lottery's $50,000 Super Crossword Scratch Game, according to a press release. The release states that Bernardi purchased his ticket at Triple C One Stop, 301 3rd Street Northwest in Hopkinton. He claimed his prize Friday at the Lottery Cedar Rapids Regional Office.
The $50,000 Super Crossword is a $5 scratch game that features 105 top prizes of $50,000 and overall odds of 1 in 3.26. And police say man assaults another with unknown blunt object in Dubuque. Police said a man struck another with a blunt object during a disturbance in Dubuque. Jacob D. Ness, age 32 of 664 Kane Street, was arrested at 5.04 a.m. Tuesday in the 700 block of West 5th Street on charges of going armed with intent, assault while displaying a dangerous weapon, first-degree harassment, interference with official acts, possession of methamphetamine, and possession of drug paraphernalia. Court documents state that Ness assaulted Corey M. Eldridge, age 34, of 1824 1⁄2 Central Avenue during a disturbance about 4.50 a.m. Tuesday in the 1800 block of Central Avenue. Eldridge told authorities Ness approached him and hit him twice in the head with an unknown blunt object, documents state. Eldridge was treated for a head injury at Unity Point Health Findlay Hospital. Ness fled the scene, but was located in the area of West 5th and Hill Streets. He was apprehended following a short foot pursuit. Officers found Ness to be in possession of methamphetamine documents state. Eldridge was arrested on a charge of violation of a no-contact order. And the Dubuque Police and Dubuque County Sheriff's Departments reported Don M. Ingersoll, age 58, of 793 West 3rd Street, number 2, was arrested at 10.14 p.m. Monday at her residence on a charge of domestic assault with injury. And Kenan R. Gray, age 31, a resident of the State Correctional Facility at 1494 Elm Street, was arrested at 6.39 p.m. Monday at the facility on a charge of first-degree harassment. Now we turn to the opinion page, and we've got an other view entitled Students' First Act Opens Possibilities. It's written by Andrew Campanella, who is a leading expert on K-12 school choice. He serves as president and CEO of the National School Choice Awareness Foundation, the 5013C3 excuse me, profit, nonprofit that hosts National School Choice Week each January. In January 2023, Iowa took a monumental step toward advancing educational freedom for families. With the enactment of the Students First Act and its expansion of the Education Savings Account Program, all parents will, by 2025-2026, be empowered to choose schools and learning environments that best meet their children's needs. Media outlets in the Hawkeye State, while covering Governor Kim Reynolds' efforts to pass the Students First Act, primarily highlighted the bill's potential to make private schooling more accessible and affordable to families, and it will. However, the program will also serve non-traditional learners and will likely fuel the expansion of micro-schools. These innovative options deserve the spotlight as well. Micro-schooling is an educational model that centers the student through its small size, usually 15 or fewer students, adaptable curriculum, and flexible scheduling. Kids of varying ages get together, whether in someone's home, a public library, a church, or even outdoors, and are taught at their own speed. For example, the Community Academy is a micro-school in Ames, Iowa, that develops community-based extracurricular programming for students with a focus on nature and environmental education through interactive out-of-the-classroom projects, the Community Academy is a primary illustration of the unique experiences that micro-schools offer. 
Due to their small size and flexibility, micro scrolls grow in popularity in Iowa and across the country during the pandemic. Parents who wanted their children to keep learning when traditional schools closed their doors and explored their options, micro-schooling fit the bill. Following the pandemic, many parents decided it was the right fit all along. Demand for micro-schooling options in Iowa has not wavered. According to a recent study by Ed Choice, 24% of Iowa parents indicated that they participate in or want to participate in some form of micro-schooling. More than half of Iowa families said they wanted to supplement their children's in-school learning with at least one day of a week of micro-school-based education. The Students' First Act will make micro-schooling more accessible to families as the new law allows families to use ESA funds for educational services. Ensuring that the supply of micro-schooling options meets parents' demands, however, is another story. Microschools do not just start on their own. As with any new entrepreneurial venture, passionate people and innovative thinkers must put forth the effort and take a leap of faith to bring their ideas to life. In the education space, these entrepreneurs, in this case parents and educators, are being dubbed edupreneurs. The Students' First Act provides these edupreneurs with the vital means necessary to make their hypothetical school, many times a micro-school, into reality. However, despite the ample demand in general for micro-schools in Iowa, some parents and educators remain hesitant to start micro-schools because they worry that in a largely rural state, there'd be too little demand. The secret, though, is that micro-schooling is an ideal fit for rural communities. Evidence from Kansas, a national hub of micro-schooling, proves this point. One such example of this in Kansas is the Rewild Family Academy, located in a tiny town called Abbeville, population 83. With a focus on restoring and protecting the natural beauty of rural Kansas, the Rewild Family Education Family Academy centers is It centers its educational outlook on sustainability in communities and biodiversity of natural habitats. Another example is the Green Gate Children's School, a K-8 micro-school in Wichita. It offers a unique collaborative nature and project-based educational experience that caters to creative and active learners. The future of education in Iowa, and indeed the nation, lies in embracing true diversity in learning models so that all students have opportunities to learn, thrive, succeed, and be happy. So, if you are a parent who wants to explore new options for your child's education, the Students First Act offers a great opportunity for you. If you are an educator looking to inspire the next generation in a truly unique way, This path-breaking new law is for you, too, and because of this, Iowa is quickly on its way to establishing itself as the national leader in rural school choice. And again, that was written by Andrew Campanella, who is a leading expert on K-12 school choice and serves as president and CEO of the National School Choice Awareness Foundation. You are listening to the Dubuque Telegraph Herald on IRIS, the Iowa Radio Rating Information Service for the Blind. All material heard on IRIS is intended solely for the use of the blind and print disabled. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. If you have any comments on this or any other IRIS program, please give us a call at area code 515-243-6833. Now it's time to turn to the obituaries, and we start by remembering Mary Jane Vossen Ginter, 
age 81 of Dubuque, who was called to heaven on Sunday, January the 21st, 2024, at her home. She was surrounded by her loving family during her final moments. A prayer service will be held at 2.45 p.m. Thursday, January the 24th, 25th, excuse me, at Holy Spirit Parish, Holy Trinity Catholic Church, followed by visitation until 7 p.m. The Mass of Christian Burial for Mary Jane will be at 10.30 a.m. Friday, January the 26th, at Holy Spirit Parish, Holy Trinity Catholic Church, with Father Stephen Garner as the celebrant. Hoffman Schneider and Kitchen Funeral Home and Crematory is in care of the arrangements. A photo tribute can be viewed and condolences sent to the family by visiting Mary Jane's obituary at www.hskfhcares.com. Next, we remember John Joseph Friesmeyer, age 82, of Cedar Rapids, who passed away peacefully surrounded by his family on January the 20th, 2024. A visitation will be held 9 a.m. Friday, January 26th until the time of the funeral mass, 11 a.m. at St. Elizabeth Ann Seton Catholic Church, Hiawatha. A private burial at Cedar Memorial Park Cemetery will be held at a later date. Memorials may be made to John's family or the Dennis and Donna Old Dorf Hospice House Fund. Given John's love for plants and trees, please consider planting a tree in his honor. Online condolences may be directed to the family at www.cedarmemorial.com under obituaries. Now we remember Paul J. Caswell, who passed away on January the 20th, 2024, at the age of 84, surrounded by members of his loving family. Mass of Christian Burial will be at 11 a.m. on Saturday, January the 27th, 2024, at St. Joseph Key West Church with Monsignor Thomas Toll officiating. Family and friends may gather after 10 a.m. at the church until time of Mass. Private entombment will be at Mount Olivet Cemetery. Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, Dubuque, Iowa, is assisting the family. In lieu of plants and flowers, a Paul Castle Memorial Fund has been established. Memorials can be sent to the Leonard Funeral Home in Dubuque, Iowa. Now we remember Mary Beth Muir Trannell, age 61, of Bellevue, Iowa, who passed away peacefully on January the 18th, 2024, after experiencing a ruptured cerebral aneurysm a few days prior. This event leading to her passing was completely unexpected and her family is profoundly saddened. Visitation will be from 3 p.m. to 6.30 p.m. on Thursday, January the 25th, 2024 at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road. The funeral service will be at 6.30 p.m. with Father Tom McDermott officiating. In lieu of flowers, a Beth Trannell memorial has been established. Now we remember Richard Dick H. Rowling, age 70, of Schulzburg, Wisconsin, formerly of Cuba City, Wisconsin, who passed away unexpectedly on Friday, January the 19th, 2024, at Lafayette Manor in Darlington, Wisconsin. A memorial service will be held at 11 a.m. on Saturday, January the 27th, at Hodden Shield Funeral Home and Cremation Services in Cuba City, Wisconsin, with Father Peter John Lee officiating. A private family burial will be held at a later date at St. Mary's Cemetery in Galena, Illinois. The Hodden Shield Funeral Home and Cremation Services in Cuba City, Wisconsin is serving the family. In lieu of plants and flowers, a Richard Dick H. Rolling Memorial Fund has been established. 
Online condolences may be left for the family at www.haudenshieldfuneralhome.com, and that's H-A-U-D-E-N-S-H-I-E-L-D. Next, we remember Jennifer Jenny Daisy, age 46, who was sadly taken from this world with her canine companion Echo at home on Thursday, January the 18th, 2024. There will be a celebration of life at Denny's Lux Club at 3050 Asbury Road, Dubuque, on Friday, January the 26th at 4 p.m. Jenny never wanted people to mourn for her traditionally, just to party and celebrate her. For those wanting to celebrate, please bring your favorite memory of Jenny and be ready to party the way she would have enjoyed. In lieu of flowers, the family requests donations be made directly to a fund set up for Nick and Kylie at https colon slash slash gofund.me slash nine one lowercase f six one lowercase a lowercase f two. Now we remember George Augustine Ben, age 81 of Dubuque, who passed away Sunday, January the 21st, 2024. Visitation will be from 3 p.m. until 6.30 p.m. Funeral service on Thursday, January the 25th at Egelhoff, Siegert, and Casper Funeral Home and Crematory, 2659 John F. Kennedy Road. Interment services and military honors will be at 10.30 a.m. on Friday, January the 26th at the chapel at Mount Cavalry Cemetery. The Dyersville American Legion Post 137, of which George was a longtime member, will provide military honors. Now we remember Patricia A. Johnson, age 89, of Dubuque, who died Sunday, January the 21st, at Luther Manor in Dubuque. A visitation will be held Thursday, January the 25th, 2024, from 10 to 11.30 a.m. at Leonard Funeral Home, 2595 Rockdale Road, Dubuque, Iowa, where a funeral service will be held at 11.30 with senior Margaret Ann Kramer officiating. The burial will take place at Mount Olivet Cemetery. In lieu of flowers, a memorial has been established. Now we remember Sandra J. Wagner, age 82, of Dubuque, who died on Sunday, January the 21st, 2024. Visitation will be held from 9 to 11.15 a.m. Saturday, January the 27th at St. Joseph the Worker Catholic Church, where a mass of Christian burial will follow at 11.30 a.m. Burial will take place at a later date in Mount Cavalry Cemetery, Hoffman, Schneider, and Kitchen Funeral Home and Cremation Service, 3860 Asbury Road, is assisting the family. And we remember Keith L. Roth, age 92, of Dubuque and formerly of East Dubuque, Illinois, who died on Sunday, January the 21st, 2024. Visitation will be held from 9.45 to 10.45 a.m. Monday, January the 29th at St. Mary's Catholic Church in East Dubuque, where a mass of Christian burial will follow at 11 a.m. Miller Funeral Home of East Dubuque is assisting the family. Next, we remember Priscilla J. Lugrain, age 31, of Dubuque, who died on Monday, January the 22nd, 2024. Visitation will be from 10 a.m. to 10 to 1.30 p.m. Monday, January the 24th. I mean, that should be Wednesday, January 24th, at Leonard Funeral Home and Crematory, 2595 Rockdale Road, where services will follow. Burial will take place in Resurrection Cemetery. 
And we remember Kenneth F. Holman, age 84, of Galena, who died on Monday, January the 22nd. Services will take place at noon Saturday, January the 27th, at Furlong Funeral Chapel in Galena. And we remember Charlene Weimer, age 92, of Galena, who died on Sunday, January 21st, 2024. Private services will be held. Furlong Funeral Chapel of Galena is assisting the family. Charles Osgood, longtime CBS Sunday morning host, dies. This is written by Mark Kennedy of the Associated Press, and the dateline is New York. Charles Osgood, a five-time Emmy Award-winning journalist who anchored CBS Sunday morning for more than two decades, hosted the long-running radio program The Osgood File and was referred to as CBS's news poet-in-residence, has died. He was age 91. CBS reported that Osgood died Tuesday at his home in Saddle River, New Jersey, and that the cause was dementia, according to his family. Osgood was an erudite, warm broadcaster with a flair for music who could write essays and light verse as well as report hard news. He worked radio and television with equal facility and signed off by telling listeners, I'll see you on the radio. To say there's no one like Charles Osgood is an understatement, Rand Morrison, executive producer of Sunday Morning, said in a statement. He embodied the heart and soul of Sunday Morning. At the piano, Charlie put our lives to music. Truly, he was one of a kind in every sense. CBS News Sunday Morning will honor Osgood with a special broadcast on Sunday. Osgood took over Sunday Morning after the beloved Charles Kuralt retired in 1994. Osgood seemingly had an impossible act to follow, but with his folksy erudition and his slightly bookish, bow-tied style, he immediately clicked with viewers who continued to embrace the program as an unhurried TV magazine. Osgood, who graduated from Fordham University in 1954, started as a classic music DJ in Washington, D.C., served in the Army, and returned to help start WHCT in Hartford, Connecticut. In 1963, he got an on-air position at ABC Radio in New York. In 1967, he took a job as reporter on the CBS-owned New York news radio station, News Radio 88. Then, one fateful weekend, he was summoned to fill in at the anchor desk for the TV network's Saturday newscast. In 1971, he joined the CBS network and launched what would be known as the Osgood File. In 1990, he was inducted into the radio division of the National Association of Broadcasters Hall of Fame. In 2008, he was awarded the National Association of Broadcasters Distinguished Service Award. He won four Emmy Awards and earned a fifth Lifetime Achievement Honor in 2017. Jane Pauley succeeded Osgood as host of Sunday Morning, becoming only the third host of the program. When he retired in 2016 after 45 years of journalism, Osgood did so in a very Osgood fashion. For years now, people, even friends and family, have been asking me why I continue to do this considering my age, the then 83-year-old Osgood said in brief, concluding remarks. It's just that it's been such a joy doing it. It's been a great run, but after nearly 50 years at CBS, the time has come. And then he sang a few wistful bars from a favorite folk song. So long, it's been good to know you. I've got to be drifting along. Now we jump over to the sports page and take a look at what's on TV today. 
in women's college basketball at 6 p.m. on ESPNU, it's Oklahoma at Texas. And at 6.30 p.m. on ESPN Plus, it's Iowa State at Kansas. In men's college basketball at 5.30 p.m., Providence at Seton Hall on FS1. Miami at Notre Dame at 6 p.m. on ESPN2. Also at 6 p.m. on the CBS Sports Network, Murray State at Bradley. And on the Big Ten Network, it's Maryland at Iowa. 6.30 p.m. on ESPN, Auburn at Alabama. 7 p.m. on ESPN Plus, Drake at Missouri State. 7.30 p.m. on FS1, Villanova at St. John's. 8 p.m. on the Big Ten Network in Illinois at Northwestern. Also at 8 p.m. on the CBS Sports Network, it's Marquette at DePaul. 8 p.m. on ESPN2, it's Kansas State at Iowa State. And 8 p.m. on ESPNU, it's Arkansas at Ole Miss. At 9.30 p.m. on FS1, Colorado State at Nevada. On CBS Network at 10 p.m., New Mexico at San Jose State. And at 10 p.m. on ESPNU, it's Colorado at Washington. National Hockey League on TNT at 6.30 p.m. You can catch the Hurricanes at the Bruins. And at 9 p.m. on TNT, you can see the Blackhawks at the Kraken. On in, in NBA basketball, 7 p.m. on BSWI, I think that's Bally Sports Wisconsin, it's the Cavaliers at the Bucks. 7.30 p.m. on ABC, it's the Suns at the Mavericks. And at 8.30 p.m. on ESPN, it's the Thunder at the Spurs. In girls prep basketball, Camden on the cusp. Hempstead's K closing in on school scoring record. It's written by Danny Miller. The result wasn't there, but the fight continues to impress Chandler Houselog. Houselog, one of just two seniors on Hempstead's roster, scored a team-best 14 points in her basket with 5.07, put her team ahead before Cedar Rapids Washington closed on an 11-0 run to take the Mustangs, take down the Mustangs 48-38 in Mississippi Valley Conference play on Tuesday at Moody Gymnasium. I'm super proud of my teammates, House Log said. They've kept their head up all season, even when things don't go our way. Our big focus this year is staying positive, and they've done that all season. The Mustangs senior, Camden K., entered Tuesday's contest needing just 11 points to break the school's all-time scoring record, but was held to a season-low 7. K. missed Monday's loss to Cedar Rapids-Kennedy with an illness and was obviously laboring through a scoreless second half. Coming off a fever 12 hours ago, it was obvious she was battling it tonight, Hempstead coach Ryan Rush said. She goes so hard, and it's just so tough when you're coming off an illness. She obviously wanted to do it at home, but she has a chance to do it Friday in Dubuque County at Western Dubuque. Kay became just the second Mustangs player to eclipse the 1,000-point barrier for her career last week during the Mustangs' last victory at Cedar Rapids-Jefferson. Sydney Feldhacker added eight points for the Mustangs, who have now dropped four in a row. Samantha Becker led a much-improved Cedar Rapids-Washington with 16 points. Lily Bell Barker added 12 points for the Warriors. Hempstead hung right with the Warriors during a first half that was never separated by more than four points, featured four ties, and three lead changes. We're really close in a lot of these games, and I think a little more push would help us out a lot, House Log said. We're all confident in each other, and if we just keep shooting, keep making good passes, making good 
plays, it will all work out. House Logs three-pointer at 239 of the second quarter put Hempstead ahead 22-21 before the Mustangs missed their final six attempts before halftime and trailed by four at the break. Her drive to the hoop at 5.07 of the fourth quarter gave the Mustangs their final lead, 38-37, with 5.07 left to play, but Hempstead went 0-5 for 5 from the floor to close the game. Still, Rush takes solace, knowing that was a game his team lost, most likely wasn't in a position to win last year. They executed down the stretch a little bit better than we did, Rush said. Other than our two seniors, we're really young team. We're learning how to win. We've won a few more games this year, but in these physical MVC games, we're, we're learning what it takes to win a game like that. Our girls fought hard all the way through. I'm proud of the improvement we're making across the board. In high school wrestling, Hempstead set to host 3A Regional. It's written by Tim O'Neill. Dubuque Hempstead will once again be competing in the regional dual tournament. Western Dubuque, however, was left out of the 24-team field. The Iowa High School Athletic Association on Tuesday unveiled its newest dual rankings and pairings for the regional dual tournament. Hempstead remained at number 7 in Class 3A, while Western Dubuque dropped from number 24. The Mustangs will host one of eight regional pods in 3A on Tuesday, January the 30th. Number 12, Clear Creek Amana, will face 20th-ranked North Scott in the regional final at 6 p.m. in Moody Gymnasium. Hempstead will face the winner for a trip to the state dual tournament held Saturday, February 3rd at Extreme Arena in Coralville. Number 1, Southeast Polk. Number 2, Indianola. Number 3, Bettendorf. Number 4, Fort Dodge. Number 5, Ankeny Centennial. Number 6, Waukee Northwest. And number 8, Linmar are also hosting regionals. The Mustangs are in the regional final, regional field for the 10th consecutive year and have reached the regional final in eight of those seasons. Hempstead will be looking for its fourth trip to the state dual tournament and its second consecutive. The Mustangs also qualified in 2016 and 2018, finishing fourth in their debut appearance and seventh in their last two. Clear Creek Amana has never reached the state dual tournament. North Scott is seeking its 10th appearance and 6th since 2015. Hempstead has not wrestled a duel against either prospective final opponent this season. In men's college basketball, here's a preview of today's games. Maryland at Iowa, 6 p.m. on the Big Ten Network. The bottom line, Iowa plays the Maryland Terrapins after Tony Perkins scored 24 points in Iowa's 80 Four to seventy loss to Purdue. The Hawkeyes have gone eight wins, two losses in home games. Iowa leads the Big Ten with eighty-six point one points and is shooting forty-eight percent. Maryland has an zero for five record in games decided by three points or fewer. Iowa makes forty-eight percent of its shots from the field this season, which is seven point six percentage points higher than Maryland has allowed to its opponents. Maryland averages 6.2 made three-pointers per game this season, 1.4 fewer made shots on average than the 7.6 per game Iowa allows. Perkins is averaging 14.4 points, 4.2 assists, and 1.7 steals for the Hawkeyes. Ben Crickey is averaging 15 points over the last 10 games for Iowa. Jameer Young is averaging 20.7 points, 4.1 assists, and 1.5 steals for the Terrapins. 
Donta Scott is averaging 13 points and 5 rebounds over the last 10 games for Maryland. And it's Drake at Missouri State, 7 p.m. on ESPN+. The bottom line, Donovan Clay and the Missouri State Bears host Tucker DeVries and the Drake Bulldogs in NVC play Wednesday. The Bears have gone 5-3 and three in home games. Missouri State is fourth in the MVC with 8.3 offensive rebounds per game, led by N.J. Benson, averaging 2.9. Drake averages 79.7 points while outscoring opponents by 13 points per game. Missouri State is shooting 43.3% from the field this season, 0.4 percentage points lower than the 43.7% Drake allows to opponents. Drake averages 8.4 made three-pointers per game this season, 1.8 more made shots on average than the 6.6 per game Missouri State gives up. Alston Mason is averaging 17 points and three assists for the Bears. Chance Moore is averaging one made three-pointer over the last 10 games for Missouri State. DeVries is shooting 45.6% and averaging 20.1 points for the Bulldogs. Atten Wright is averaging 15 points over the last 10 games for Drake. Kansas State at Iowa State at 8 p.m. on ESPN2. Number 23, Iowa State hosts the Kansas State Wildcats after Keyshawn Gilbert scored 20 points in Iowa State's 73-72 win over the TCU Horned Frogs. The Cyclones have gone 11-0 in home games. Iowa State ranks 5th in college basketball, allowing 60.7 points per game while holding opponents to 39.3% shooting. Kansas State is 3-2 when it wins the turnover battle and averages 14 turnovers per game. Iowa State's average of 6.4 made three-pointers per game is 1.1 fewer made shots on average than the 7.5 per game Kansas State gives up. Kansas State averages 13.8 more points per game than Iowa State allows to opponents. Tamman Lipsy is scoring 14.5 points per game with 5.5 rebounds and 5.6 assists for the Cyclones. Gilbert is averaging 12.5 points and 5.2 assists over the last 10 games for Iowa State. Tyler Perry is averaging 14.9 points and 5.1 assists and 1.5 steals for the Wildcats. Cam Carter is averaging 16.6 points over the last 10 games for Kansas State. And Illinois at Northwestern at 8 p.m. on the Big Ten Network. Northwestern faces the number 10 Illinois Fighting Illini after Brooks Bamheiser scored 24 points in Northwestern's 75-69 loss to the Nebraska Cornhuskers. The Wildcats are 9-1 in home games. Northwestern averages 72.7 points and has outscored opponents by 5.3 points per game. Illinois is 6th in college basketball with 28.3 defensive rebounds per game, led by Quincy Guerrier, averaging 5.9. Northwestern averages 7.8 made three-pointers per game, two more made shots than the 5.8 per game Illinois gives up. Illinois averages 8.3 made three-pointers per game this season. 1.3 more made shots on average than the 7 per game Northwestern allows. 
Ty Berry is shooting 41.8% from beyond the arc with 2.3 made three-pointers per game for the Wildcats while averaging 11.3 points and 1.6 steals. Boo Bowie is shooting 41.5% and averaging 17.5 points over the past 10 games for Northwestern. Marcus Damask is averaging 14.7 points and 3.3 assists for the Illini. Here's some local score, high school basketball scores. First, the boys' basketball. Cedar Rapids Kennedy, 86. Western Dubuque, 39. In girls' high school basketball, Dubuque Wallert defeated Cedar Rapids Jefferson, 57-27. to Western Dubuque defeated Cedar Rapids Kennedy, 59-44. to And Cascade defeated Comance, Comanche, excuse me, 52-29. to in boys bowling, West Delaware, 2,796. Dubuque Wallert, 2,786. And in girls bowling, Dubuque Wallert, 2,388. West Delaware, 2,368. And in men's volleyball, Loris College defeated Milwaukee School of Engineering 3-0. to That brings us to the end of today's reading of the Dubuque Telegraph Herald. I'm your reader, Scott Splavik. Thanks for sharing your time with IRIS, the Iowa Radio Reading Information Service for the Blind.